I'd like to offer some encouraging thoughts from Psalm 85 today. It's a psalm that in my Bible, in the ESV, is entitled, Revive Us Again. And it's a psalm that invites the people of God to do, I think, what we're endeavoring to do right here together. It's to pray together for a fresh revival. And I'm hoping that as we look at this for just a few minutes, this psalm becomes fuel for our our fire, the fire of prayer that the Lord says should burn continually without ceasing. And I hope that we can enter a little bit into this psalmist thought. So uh, I'll just read little portions of it and discuss it as as we step through. I want to just observe sort of three large portions of Psalm 85. Uh, It begins with a remembrance of past restoration, then enters into a prayer for a fresh revival, and finally gives us a view of what life looks like when God's glory dwells in our land. And that last part is the one I want to really focus on think of together. But look at the first uh, three verses. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. It begins with a remembrance of past restoration. Israel's long history was full of God's favor and restoration just poured out on them way beyond what any of them deserved. And the psalmist, the sons of Korah here, begin by just recalling that, thinking back to it with the intention, I believe, of bringing the history to present day. What does it mean for us today that God has been favorable in the past? God's people, Israel, And since then, regularly walked into backsliding and all sorts of really, really bad sin. Aaron led, Aaron, the high priest, led the people in idolatrous worship of the golden calf. Remember that? There was this quarreling uh, at the waters of Meribah. There was a fornication with the women of Moab and worship of their God, their Baal. And then there's the rebellion of the uh, rebellion led by Korah against Moses. That's all just in the books of Moses, right? Not to mention the Psalms and the, or sorry, the um, uh, Samuel and the judges and the kings and so on. It's just sin after sin after sin. But despite all that sin, What do we read? Verse 3, you withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. And so goes the history of Israel. Sin is covered by forgiveness. Exile is followed by restoration. God's wrath quenched, satisfied by his mercy. What a faithful God we serve. And we're all here today because of the same thing. And we can think back to God's past restoration and forgiveness. 
read on in verses four and following. The psalmist moves from a remembrance of the past to a, a prayer now today for fresh revival. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. And then some poignant questions. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? And then this question, which we love, will you not revive us again? I think this question, restore us again, has really been on our hearts. Just like on Saturday, I think, the devotional thought about Samson. Samson's hair slowly growing back, being a symbol of the restoration of our devotion toward God. God, will you do that for us? Will you restore us again, just like you have in the past? Will you not revive us again? And there are three results of revival that I want to point out in this text. Verse 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? I find it interesting, this wording suggests to me that so long as there's no revival, there's a lack of rejoicing, at least a certain kind of rejoicing. If the truths that we as Christians profess are really true, should we not be the most joyful people on all the earth? And shouldn't our... um, Shouldn't our services of worship be the most exuberant events in the neighborhood of all the week? And yet, how often is that the case? I mean, you can go to the local football stadium or soccer stadium or hockey arena. And I mean, there's, there's way more energy there and celebration of a victory that lasts for a few minutes than there is in the typical church service that celebrates an eternal victory. Why is that? Because I think there is a truth in this, that so long as revival tarries, the people of God cannot rejoice as we should. And why is that the truth? I think the most the most common explanation that that I can think of is simply that God's presence and his power are not experiential realities for us. Oh yeah, like we can read it in the book and we can read it, we can explain it, we can exposit it doctrinally, we can preach about it, but for some reason it's just not experiential. In fact, in some church circles, the word experience is almost like a bad word. Like if I say it accidentally, I have to apologize. What's going on? So I think that the prayer for revival is a prayer for God's manifest presence and power again, right? We've been meditating on that point a lot lately. I think I've heard it from Dr. Rick, Dr. Ian in the UK, and I've heard it in the prayers of many people here. God, manifest yourself among us again. Okay, so rejoicing is one result. Then look at verse 7 and 8. There's a hunger that results from revival. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. 
grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he'll speak peace to his people. See, when God revives his people, we naturally draw close to him. And then we pray things like this. Show us. That's our eyes. Our eyes are opened and fixed on you, Lord. Will you grant us your salvation? Our hands are empty and lifted to you, ready to receive. Let me hear what you would speak. That's our ears. So every faculty that we have, every sense, every organ that you've given us, Lord, they're waiting expectantly for you to fill them and provide us something from your hand. So that's the second result. There's a hunger for God. And the third result here I see in uh, the end of verse 8. Speak peace to your people, to your saints, and let them not turn back to folly. So that's repentance. Don't turn back to folly. Don't let us backslide again. And isn't it true that revival is always accompanied by repentance? I, I loved hearing that illustrated in, um, in the book that, uh, that that Sermon Audio published and helped to distribute about the, um, the, the New York Prayer Revival. There was a confession of sin that just sprung up from the union prayer meeting that was a fruit of repentance. All right, so a prayer for fresh revival with three results, rejoicing, a renewed hunger for God, and repentance. And then look at verses 11, uh, sorry, 9, 10, and 11. Surely salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And then, so here's this third and final section of the psalm, where the psalmist paints a picture of God's glory dwelling in the land. This is fascinating to me. Verses 10 and 11, he, he uh, takes some attributes of God and personifies them and then says, imagine our land when these people are operating in the land and walking around. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. So, aha, there, there goes steadfast love walking down the street. And here comes faithfulness. Their eyes meet. They come together. They greet each other with an embrace. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Now, righteousness and peace normally under other circumstances don't get along. They're actually quite at odds because the wages of sin is what? Death. And God's righteousness demands perfect justice, which for us, us sinful people, is anything but peace. In fact, God's righteousness is our greatest threat in our natural state. It's not peace for us. But where do righteousness and peace kiss each other? Like in this song. Friends, it happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? That is where God's righteousness is completely fulfilled in the righteous life of Christ. And his death quenches 
the need for justice completely. And in exchange for our sin, we get Jesus's righteousness and therefore peace with God. That all happens if we lay our faith on him, on that work on the cross. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. So in times of revival, the gospel of Jesus Christ is manifest among us. The work of Jesus on the cross is, is, is like God's glory dwelling in our land. In verse 11, faithfulness just springs up from the ground. It's like the common seed that fills the empty field. It, like no, from no effort of anyone, it just, it just springs up and it's there. Righteousness seems to look down from the sky and just, just like the sunshine out my window, through no effort of my own, it's there and it's shining down on the righteous and the wicked because of God's decision. It's as abundant and pervasive as that. And everywhere you look, when God's glory dwells in our land, Everywhere you look, there is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's like we say at Christmas time, Emmanuel. God is actually with us. He's among us. He's dwelling in our land. That's the, that's the picture of life that the psalmist paints when God sends revival. So imagine the church in revival. A few weeks ago, I, I think I remember our brother Curtis doing this in his meditation. He, he kind of led us through just an imaginative view of what, what life would be like, what our society would be like in these times. Churches full of daily prayer meetings. Even the midweek service is standing room only. And people are crowded outside the door just to see if they can catch a glimpse and a word of what's being spoken inside, right? And you remember, if, if you're a, 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 a student of historical revivals, if the preacher arrived late, there wouldn't be room to get up to the front. He would have to body surf on top of the shoulders of the crowd just to get to the pulpit. The singing in the churches, oh, not just like the groaning we usually hear in, in churches Sunday mornings now, but singing that fills your bones with fire, singing that calls down the Holy Spirit, the, that the God who answers with fire, as we saw with Elijah. And even driving down the main street of your city, it would be a common sight to see people knelt down by the side of the street because in the middle of their day, they've been overwhelmed with conviction. The presence of God. This is not, this is not science fiction. These things actually happened if you read the books of history. The records of the Welsh Revival speak of people as they traveled from town to town suddenly coming under what they called the canopy of God's presence. Suddenly, they just knew he was there. 
And in the New York revival, sailors on great ships that were coming into the New York Harbor, even before they docked, suddenly the whole crew just came under conviction and knew the presence of Almighty God, even before they reached the dock. So strong was the glory of God that dwelt in our land. Finally, verse 12, yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Let's continue seeking him together in this way. Just like a child who keeps coming to his father and asking for good things, asking for bread, asking for fish. Because yes, The Lord will give what is good. Let's continue to seek him for his presence in our land. Amen.